Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Chapter 13, Mad-Eye Moody. The storm had blown itself out by the following morning, though the ceiling in the great hall was still gloomy. Heavy clouds of pewter gray swirled overhead as Harry, Ron, and Hermione examined their new course schedules at breakfast. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. One of the reasons my parents moved to little village of Forest Row in England was that we could live near enough the school that we went to so that we could walk every morning. It was about a 20-minute walk, and so many kids walked to school that there was sort of an exodus moment as you arrived near the school, like the hordes of children and teenagers. And so me as like a little five, six, seven-year-old walking next to my mom and my sisters, I'd look around at these bigger kids. And one of the things I always noticed was, you know, some of them were goths or emo, And so I would say to my mom, like, Mom, I'm never going to wear black. I always just want to wear colors. (laughs) And... Of course, now I wear a lot of black. And then when I was maybe 12 or 13 and I was like really obsessed with the top 40 music charts, I thought it was nearly criminal if you didn't know what was number one or like a couple of top 10 songs. Like, how could you be so out of touch? This is so important to understand culture. This is really an oversight of adults that they're not paying attention. And now I'm like, I couldn't even tell you what was number one yesterday or over the last 12 years, frankly. And then when I was like 22, 23, I was full on in my climate change activism and I had decided I was not going to fly. And so I spent two, three years not using any airplanes because it's such a harmful impact on the climate. It's one of the few things that we can personally choose to do or not do that has such a big impact in terms of our, our carbon emissions. And now for work, I have to fly all the time. But perhaps the most damning form of self-judgment isn't one from the past, but is one that I feel is in my brain all the time. And I think is in all of our brains all the time, which is we can be so critical of ourselves. And I recently heard about a little exercise, which I did, and it was terrifying, which was to actually physically write down some of the internal judgments that we say against ourselves. Little things like, well, no one's going to want 
you wearing that or why are you doing this? And for me, it's nearly always about my body, but it's like, why are you wearing that? Or why are you eating that? Or like all these things, which in our head seem unpleasant, but like normal. And then when you write them down, they're really unpleasant. And then this is the thing that really made it horrific is you have to imagine yourself saying that to someone you love, like to their face. And I was just like, oh my God, how can we be so cruel to ourselves all day long? Like these judgments are on a loop, on a loop, on a loop. And so throughout this chapter, through this theme of judgment, there's all these moments where we see judgment of one another, especially around Draco Malfoy's punishment at the hands of Moody, but also, you know, Hermione's change in judgment of herself about eating or not eating in terms of solidarity action with the house elves. I'm just really interested to think about how judgment changes over time and the difference between judging others and judging ourselves. Yeah, my friend Bridget, whenever I say anything self-disparaging, she's like, hey, that's my friend you're talking about. And it's like so nice. I'm like, yeah, I shouldn't say bad things about your friends. It's like such a generous way to see yourself as like someone's best friend. And you're like, oh, right. That makes me really teary. I know. It's very sweet. But hey, Vanessa, before we go into our next segment, I just want you to know not to judge yourself when you do really badly in this 30-second recap. Well, thank you, because I never do badly in the 30-second recap. You're so good at looking after my friend. (laughs) All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Owl Post arrives and Harry's like, ah, where's Hedwig? They go to class. They have um, herbology and they have to get pus and acne is gross. And then they have to go to to Hagrid and he's having them do blast-ended scroots and it's going really poorly. And Hermione's like, Draco, it's a great idea. And then Hermione's like, no, it's a terrible idea. Um, And then they go up and they're fighting in the hallway with Draco. And Draco is about to do something like bad to Harry. And then Moody turns him into a ferret. A squirrel? No, a ferret. A ferret? I said it right? Yeah, totally nailed it. Okay, Casper, it's your turn now. Are you ready? Yeah. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so we really get to see how cool Mad-Eye is in this chapter because he turns Draco into a ferret and like, bum, he goes up and down, up and down, boom, boom, boom. And um, McGonagall's like, no, what are you doing? He's like, I'm teaching. And it's like, no, detention. Um, And uh, Ron and Harry go up to divination. And Hermione's like, don't do that. You should do arithmancy. Um, And we didn't even get any homework. And Harry kind of drifts off. And actually, the class is all about him. And like, we see Lavender's Uranus. (laughs) One of your most important skills in the world is your ability to pick the most salient detail from the chapter and you, end with it. You mean Uranus? Yeah. <laughs> Vanessa, let's start off here. Where did you see judgment in this chapter? So, as our listeners know, I've become sort of like pro-Trelawney. I'm at least very interested in assuming that she's better at divination than people give her credit for, even than Dumbledore gives her credit for. I wouldn't say I'm like, Lavender Parvati loving Trelawney, but I'm like curious about her. But in this chapter, she seems to make a blatant error. She asks Harry, she's like, let me guess, you were born in the dead of winter. (laughs) And Harry's like, no, no, I was born in July. And we just see that Parvati and Lavender stay completely committed to her. They are nonplussed by this blatant error. So I was just thinking, like, when you love someone or when you admire someone, how you make excuses even for their 
blatant mistakes and how your judgment goes out the window when you care about someone. So here's the thing. July is only summer in the Northern Hemisphere. But Trelawney could have been born in the Southern Hemisphere where our summer is their winter and their winter is our summer. I love it. So July is not necessarily summertime. Oh, I love it. But like we also see this with Hermione. Hermione does it intentionally, though, not the way that Lavender and Parvati do, right? Hermione like defends Hagrid to Draco and is like, this is a great lesson about plastic discreets. And then Draco walks away and she looks at Harry and Ron and is like, no, it's not. It's a really bad lesson. But I wonder if Lavender and Parvati are doing the same thing here. Maybe they feel so defensive of Trelawney, like she's always marginalized and ridiculed. And they're like, we love her. They probably go and visit her in the North Tower in the same way that the trio go and visit Hagrid in his hut. So I wonder, maybe they're defending her in the same way. Ooh, do you know what just occurred to me? These are our two characters, Trelawney and Hagrid, with drinking problems. Are these children who are in codependent relationships with them? Or are these like children caring for people with addiction problems? I had never thought about codependency in this context. Me neither. Uh, Which, you know, and codependency is all about relationships that are addictive in their own nature in the sense that they can be very one-sided, emotionally destructive, and even abusive. But also it's about relationships in which the caring part of the relationship is inverse. So when children are taking care of a parent rather than a parent taking care of a child— Harry, Ron, and Hermione rely on Hagrid to be their teacher, but Hagrid overly relies on them to, like, help him get rid of a dragon. Right. Right. And we could say, you know, these relationships are not abusive, but that would also not be entirely true in the sense that looking after these very, very dangerous creatures has real impacts on the trio physically. I mean, just think of book two with Aragog. That's way beyond a child's capacity or responsibility. And it's like trying to look after a parent who's in the midst of hallucination and therefore dangerous because they're not aware of what they're doing. Right. So I feel like I really pride myself on trying to be a non-judgmental person and empathize with people and where they are. And But I think that judgment is also a good thing, right? Because judgment can protect us. And when we are absent of judgment, we can allow people to continue harmful cycles. I wonder what would happen if Lavender and Parvati went to Dumbledore and were like, we think Trelawney has a drinking problem. And Dumbledore's like, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> right. But sometimes even just lifting up, then Dumbledore might have to do something. He might not know that the students know. Right. So I think that sometimes when we love something too much and therefore remove judgment, it can be up to the point where it's truly detrimental. I mean, Hermione is protecting Hagrid from being a good teacher. I wonder if she were to be openly judgmental to him in a kind way, but was like, Hagrid, you need to do better. Right. Because so much of codependency is about enabling destructive behaviors. I'm wondering, this codependency theme is really sticking out at me in a new way because it reminds me of Draco and his relationship with 
we presume Narcissa, as she sends him sweets, endless amounts of supplies of delicious things. And, you know, maybe that's to supply him with things that he can share at school. But it also feels like that relationship of love, it feels like there's something there which is really unhealthy. It's an unhealthy expression of love in the way that codependency can be. Well, first of all, there are plenty of sweets on the Hogwarts ground. So it's not like he needs these. So if she's sending them to him to share, that's a lack of faith in his ability to make friends on his own terms. Like he needs to bribe friends or it's a lack of belief in him being able to make himself happy. Like we have to supplement you in some way. And I I think that this is like Narcissa's inability to see that like Draco needs a different kind of love and a different kind of support. Just like Petunia is unable to judge that Dudley is obese, right? She loves him so much that she can't see him with a critical enough eye to try to keep him healthy. Right. And I think both of these women, to some extent, are really caged into a certain life and are are expressing so much of their desire through their children in a way that seems also, you know, unhealthy. I think the way in which judgment as our theme shows up here is really a a lack of self-judgment by these people who have responsibilities as parents, but also Snape as housemaster, right? Like he is letting his students run amok and turn to the very worst parts of themselves because he's unwilling to make judgments that have implications, right? There's no consequences. They're failing in their duty of care because they're unwilling to create some discomfort with that initial judgment and its consequence. But the result of it is a much bigger damaging experience of life. Yeah, which reminds me of the, like, sort of big moment in this chapter, right? So Mad-Eye Moody notices that Draco is about to cast a spell as Harry is walking away. Well, he has, but he's missed the first time. Right, right. And so what Moody says is, I can't stand when somebody shoots at somebody's back. And so he turns Draco into a ferret. And reading it for the first several times, sort of like with a kid's delight of like, finally, Draco is getting his comeuppance. And I think part of what's satisfying about that is that Draco is never judged and held to account. Exactly. And so the fact that he's getting this like insane punishment in this moment, you're like, finally, finally, his day in court has arrived. He has been judged, tried and convicted in one moment. And like, thank goodness. And at the level that he inflicts pain on other people, there's a physicality to being turned into a ferret and being bounced up and down on the floor. Like, this is severe. And he's being humiliated in the way that like Draco likes to humiliate other people. It's so satisfying. But Minerva McGonagall, with her poise and good judgment comes in and she knows Draco's a jerk and she knows that Draco in like a karmic way has this coming but her judgment as to how teachers behave to students is so clear even though she knows that if Draco is sent to Snape he won't get in trouble she says what we do is we give detentions and we send students to their housemaster. We don't inflict torture upon students. There's a sense of discernment and judgment. There's this lack of codependency with McGonagall because she has such a firm understanding of what her responsibility is. And she doesn't allow personal judgments to get in the way of her like good judgment. Yeah, I think she exhibits that so beautifully. 
This moment is so interesting through this theme of judgment in a number of ways because, you know, we talked in the last episode about wanting to read Moody with this extra layer of thinking about him as Crouch also. And that opened up this scene for me in a whole new way because he is very specific about referencing people's families in this scene. So when he catches Draco, he's not only saying, oh, you're Draco Malfoy and you're misbehaving, but I know your father. And we've always read that as Moody being like, oh, Lucius Malfoy is so awful, he's a Death Eater. No, this is Crouch saying, your father is a two-faced, lying coward who didn't stay true to Voldemort in the way that I have, and I'm going to punish you, his son, for it. And what I read into this this time around, thinking about Barty Crouch Jr., was, of course, he's trying to protect Harry from Draco and wants to smack Draco down to be like, you can't hurt him because I have to save him from my lord and master, right? Like, he has to be unhurt by the end of the year so that Voldemort can rise with his pure blood, blah, blah, blah. But I love this reading. I think that that is exactly right. That he's like, your father is a traitor. You're a traitor and a coward. Right, like, because he's doing the same behavior. He's attacking while his back is turned. Ugh. And the same is true of Snape. He's like, oh, Snape is your head of house? Well, I have something to say to him, too. Amazing. <laughs> so much judgment. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Casper, where else do you see this theme of judgment? We've touched on the blast-ended scroots before, but I want to return to them because there's this overarching theme in the conversations between the students and that they're really challenging Hagrid with this question, which is, what is the point of looking after and raising these blast-ended scroots? They literally don't even have mouths. Right. What's the point of having these things alive? Wouldn't it be better just to squish them and kill them now before they get dangerous? And... It really made me think about like the tyranny of functionalism in the sense that in Draco's judgment, there's no inherent worth or value in these animals, these beings. And it's really just about how are they going to be useful to us? And Hermione even gets stuck into that frame. You know, even though she's pretending at this point, she's like, well, dragons are dangerous too, but dragon blood is useful. And there's this continuing sense that the only reason why something should be alive is if it's valuable to humans or to the wizarding world in some way. I don't know. I just find that so frightening. It's capitalistic. It's anthropocentric. You know, it's all about putting humans at the middle of the existing world. Everything else is just there in service of humans. I don't know. I feel like 
yes, there might be value in them in helping cure pancreatic cancer in the next 50 years or something. But they're alive and that should be enough. Like This is how we marginalize squibs, right? This is how people feel less than if they don't fit into our paradigm of how to be useful and productive in society. And that judgment really scared me because the next level of that is you become a death eater and, and you hate on muggles because they don't have wizarding abilities. You have nothing smart to add to that except, yep, it's frightening. I think Hermione's answer is trying to speak Draco's language. And the other thing that I'll justify with Hermione is that everything in school should have the benefit of being beneficial for learning. And Hagrid at least isn't making it explicit to them. We take care of things sometimes just because they're alive and that's enough. I guess I wish that Hagrid was making that a coherent argument. But he doesn't say that explicitly. He's just sort of fetishizing these dangerous animals. And that is not enough of a reason. I completely agree with you that Hagrid is not fulfilling his duty as a teacher. But I I think what's really interesting in this moment is, as you said, Hermione's trying to speak Draco's language, right? She's trying to use the frame which Draco has introduced and respond to him in a way that he'd hear. The challenge with that is, is that it only strengthens the frame at all. If she had counted and said, it actually doesn't matter. Like what matters is that these things are alive and we have a duty of care. Like you introduce a a whole different way of thinking about the challenge. So often we see this in public policy debates, you know, where people talk about, you know, we should accept refugees because they will help grow the economy, right? It's new skills. And it's like, no, we should accept refugees because They need a place to be right now where they're not going to die. And it's so easy to fall into the frame of reference, which only characterizes people's production units. As you can tell, I have very little feeling about this topic. Yeah, I clearly don't care. So I completely agree with you, right? And that's how we get to new bad normals, by engaging with arguments that it's like, this shouldn't even be an argument. Right. But I also understand, I feel like if I were in Hermione's shoes, and I agree with you, right, that like validating this frame is just disgusting. But I also know that when I'm engaged in these kinds of arguments with people, I feel like I'm going to be dismissed as a hippie Yes. if I'm like, but also just because it's nice. And so there's a fear of being dismissed. Yes. And I wonder if it's at least a little bit on gender lines of like women don't want to be seen as like soft and mushy. And so it's like, no, I can make your argument, too. I feel like this is so central to Draco's challenge throughout this whole seven book story in that he is put into this frame of wizarding supremacy and just an attitude of superiority to everything, which is all about functional value. And when he does not kill Dumbledore, when he fails in that ultimate test, he can never be part of that story in the way that his father wants him to be. And just like you're saying, this is gendered. I think in Draco's case, right, he shows weakness and he illustrates that life is more important than supremacy. That's the choice he makes in that moment in not killing Dumbledore. And so I feel like he is trapped in this frame. Like he's not happy in this world either, even if it's benefiting him right now. I want to explore that more because it's very complicated. And there's something there that Draco is trapped in this as well. I think that this might speak to the brilliance of Dumbledore, that he often goes against what's expected of him. Like we talked about last week, he's expected to give a big fancy speech and he says, tuck in. He wants to go against expectations, which I do think is a way of like 
breaking the dichotomous norms that we see the world in. Absolutely. And this is, okay, to get a little religious here for a second, this is what I love about the imagery and the language in the Christian context of this idea of the kingdom of God. Because essentially what the kingdom illustrates is a different set of norms and assumptions. In God's kingdom or in heaven, it doesn't matter if you're disabled or able-bodied and therefore if you're good at producing machine widgets. What matters is that you're a beloved child of God and beautiful in your fullness of who you are. But it takes such practice and courage. And it's so countercultural to live in that set of assumptions rather than this one. And I love that you're pointing to Dumbledore as being able to do that because he sees that in every student. He even sees it in Tom Riddle, right? He sees all the danger that's there, but he also sees who he could become when he's a student. It's funny that you went to God because I went to like absurdist humor, (laughs) but I love absurd humor. I don't often laugh out loud at absurdist humor, but it messes with my mind. And I'm like, right, why isn't that funny? When something shocking happens, it's so refreshing when something just goes against the norm. That's what Hagrid is doing. He's introducing blast-ended scroots as an absurdist humorous commentary on the failed pedagogy of Hogwarts. (laughs) If only that were so. Vanessa, we're continuing our sacred imagination spiritual practice. And again, this is one of those practices that is supposed to help us move from one way of seeing the world into another, to notice different things and to try and suspend the judgments that we usually would engage with. So I'm going to read a chapter and I'm going to invite you and everyone who is not driving or cycling to close your eyes and really pay attention to your senses, to the tastes, the smells, the touch on your skin, what you can see, what you can hear, and try and see this at an angle. Like, what can you see that's different or what can you experience that's different from the first time that you read it? They reached the entrance hall, which was packed with people queuing for dinner. They had just joined the end of the line when a loud voice rang out behind them. Weasley! Hey, Weasley! Harry, Ron, and Hermione turned. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle were standing there, each looking thoroughly pleased about something. What? said Ron shortly. Your dad's in the paper, Weasley, said Malfoy, brandishing a copy of the Daily Prophet and speaking very loudly so that everyone in the packed entrance hall could hear. Listen to this. Further mistakes at the Ministry of Magic. It seems as though the Ministry of Magic's troubles are not yet at an end, writes Rita Skeeter, special correspondent. Recently under fire for its poor crowd control at the Quidditch World Cup and still unable to account for the disappearance of one of its witches, the Ministry was plunged into fresh embarrassment yesterday by the antics of Arnold Weasley of the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts Office. Malfoy looked up. Imagine them not even getting his name right, Weasley. It's almost as though he's a complete non-entity, isn't it? He crowed. Everyone in the entrance hall was listening now. Malfoy straightened the paper with a flourish and read on. So what struck you this time? The first thing occurred to me is how beautiful it is that Harry and Hermione turn around to. Mm. That you were like such good friends with someone that if you hear their name called, you turn around. Imagining myself as Ron... 
just like how nice that must feel, mm. even if he doesn't know it, right? It's just like there's this collective thing that Ron is a part of and how that might inform his response to this whole thing. Like, obviously, he's in the midst of being humiliated, but he has to just feel so confident in knowing he is not alone mm. in fighting this. He has two people who so thoroughly have his back that they turn their heads with him. And that must give him a different sense of how he responds to this than if he was being mocked alone. Totally. I love even that the text says Harry, Ron, and Hermione turned, right? It's not even Ron turning first. Yeah. That's beautiful. The other thing that occurred to me was how awful it is that Draco has the paper and Ron doesn't. Like, he can't anticipate what's coming. He can't fight with, like, the same expertise. I hate it when people say something that I know I disagree with, but they have more data than I do. And I'm like, but you're still wrong. I don't know why you're wrong and you have the facts, or at least you're pretending to have the facts and I don't. But I'm sure in my gut that you're wrong. And so that just must feel so disempowering. So I feel like both empowered by the fact that my friends are there, but disempowered and so frustrated that I can't I can't defend my parents because I don't have all the information. Right. I'm really struck by the fact that Bertha Jorkins is in this moment. We know she died in the first chapter. We're in chapter 13 now. We're, we're a good quarter of the way through the book. The shadow of her still lingers through the text. She's not even named here, you know, still unable to account for the disappearance of one of its witches. I'm actually really struck that it is Rita who keeps bringing her life back into this story because she is one of those people who doesn't have that functionality right her memory is bad so she's not respected she's not valued in her work and so her life is not valued and i don't know for all her faults rita's the one who keeps pointing at her worthiness in these pages and i'm guessing that bertha's not married or has kids because otherwise like somebody would be looking for her and so that's the other thing right is like her quote-unquote functionality as a woman right isn't real right she's not a mother she's not a wife she's not good at her job so what value does she have right like who cares if she goes missing what is she doing not feeding her cat i mean to your point from earlier right like we have to just see the inherent value in people regardless of their relationships and regardless of their quote-unquote impact on the world. Bertha Jorkins was a person and, like, nobody cares. It's time for our voicemail, and this one's from Brie Analey. Hi, friends. I just wanted to send you guys a voicemail saying thank you so much for this podcast. Um, It's helped me a lot with what I've been processing in my life lately. I just graduated university um, in California uh, in May, and I moved to the Middle East to see the world when I'm young. And I moved into an apartment with two other women from the States. And we've found that we're quite different. Um, But one thing we really have in common is our love for reading. And so I presented Harry Potter to them. um, And we've decided to read through all the books together. One of the girls loves the books just as much as I do. And one of them hasn't read it ever before. And so we're walking through the books with her for the first time. And it's been so helpful to go through 
the podcast with you guys. I'm, I just finished book one, but it's been so helpful to, to go through that and to have such a uniting experience as we're so different and processing so many things in a new country. Um, but just to have this book to, to come together and unite us together, we found a lot of our friendship based on that. And I've been giving them a lot of insight from all your blessings and all your process um, processings from the podcast. So thank you so much for for it. And I'm really excited to continue reading on to book two. Brie, I love that you're reading Harry Potter together. That's so amazing, especially with someone who hasn't read the books before. And it reminds me so much of the growing number of in-person groups that we're hearing about. On the website, if you go to harrypottersacredtext.com slash groups, you'll be able to see in which cities we know that there are meetups happening so you can be in person and have conversations just like Brie is. And it does bring a whole new depth to the conversations because you'll see things that we haven't. And especially especially if you're reading with someone who's reading for the first time, there's all sorts of assumptions and new questions that are revealed. So I highly recommend doing what Brie is doing and getting together to read in person. And I like the idea of when you're not getting along with someone, trying to find something that you all love. Mm. Vanessa, it's time for us to give a blessing to someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you giving your blessing to today? I am blessing poor Minerva McGonagall. Mm. We have only seen her twice in this book so far, and all she's doing is running around yelling at poorly behaving men. She's like, Peeves, stop throwing water balloons. She almost slips and has to grab Hermione around the neck to, like, not break her hip. And then she catches Moody slash Crouch torturing a student and is like, what are you doing? And this like cannot be how Minerva wants to be spending her time. She is a teacher. She is the assistant headmistress. She's the head of Gryffindor House. And she is running around yelling at poorly behaving men. And it is just not her job. And I just want to offer a blessing to women who, because certain men don't know how to behave in their lives, spend their time taking care of them as if they are children instead of, like, getting to do their jobs. Thank you for not being one of those men, Casper. I try every day. Yeah, you're not. I never feel like I have to take care of you because you're inept. Like, if you're sick, I feel like I should take care Mm. of you. (laughs) What about you? Who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Eloise Midgen. Mm. who is someone I had never noticed before. But in the early pages of this chapter, during Madame Sprout's class, when they're popping pus that turns out to be good for acne, Hannah Abbott mentions that there was a girl who tried to curse her own spots off her face and that it went horribly wrong, and that girl was Eloise Midgen. And so I think... You know, thinking about this theme of judgment and thinking about the judgments that we have of ourselves and our bodies, this blessing is for anyone who is doesn't see perfection when they look in the mirror and, and wants to do drastic things to change what they look like. I guess I'm blessing all of us to be a little more forgiving of ourselves and to see the beauty that is always there. I bet Eloise has beautiful eyes. And probably her skin is just fine, too. Yep. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We really like them. And please send us a voicemail. And just as a reminder, the way to do that is to record a voice memo on your phone or computer and to email us at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. 
Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curse Through the Theme of Transformation. This podcast is produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Me! Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemails from Brie and Ellie, thanks to Hashi Hetegay, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Uranus is my favorite. I love that like the whole space world now calls it Uranus because they just cannot deal anymore. Is Uranus a god or something? Yes, he's a figure from Greek mythology. He was the sky god Uranos. O-U-R-A-N-O-S. That was a missed opportunity with the spelling error. That's true. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.